There we go. Last week, I don't know what I did wrong, but um, I did not start the podcast correctly. And that wasn't good. It's all these moving parts to be taken care of. So I'm glad all of of y'all are here today as we resume our journey through um, 1 Samuel. We kind of start. You're right, Gary. We kind of start. We did get a little a little taste last week, but you know, you know me. Context matters a lot in the Bible. Everything everything has to be read in context, or you're just. It's the only way you can connect dots is to know context. So that's why we do that. So I don't have much in the way of announcements. There is one uh, Tuesday in February when Patty and I will be gone. We will be on a cruise in the Caribbean. We may be sitting, we may be sitting in Margaritaville at this time, on the in Grand Turk, having a Cuban sandwich and a margarita. Well, February 11th, something like that. Yeah, but ours is only a week. Yours is 11 days. You said, yeah, different, different, different deal. So let's see. Um, I don't have anything else. Patty, do you have anything else that I should lift up here at the beginning of class? I'm sorry. No, but that Tuesday will actually be Valentine's Day. So. Oh, Valentine's Day will be that Tuesday, huh? It will be, yes. 5, 7, 14. We may be at St. on Grand Turk on Valentine's Day. I don't know what the schedule is, but it's good to see everybody here, really. This is just wonderful. So... I guess we're going to plunge on in, okay? So would you please pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful for the opportunity you give us to come together in this way, in person, online, streaming, the whole thing, um, uh, to come together, take an hour and a half out of our week to be here and to study your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to appreciate the stories in First Samuel to to understand them um, in the larger context of, of your work in this world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I excuse me, but I am going to check my my little phone because you see I do a recording in here that is separate. Okay, so it's recording, and I'm going to gingerly return it to my pocket in the hopes that I don't do anything. Gary, yes. Patty did a fabulous job last Sunday. Patty did a fabulous job last Sunday, but we had we had Officer Chris be honest. And you're wearing your badge, Gary. That's very good. Yes, it was a great presentation. And in light of that, Patty, when is he coming back? He will be back on Wednesday, March first at two o'clock down here. Um, unless we kind of sell out this room, of course it's free, but there was 242 people that came to class on Sunday, which was really big. Yeah, yeah. so Tuesday, Wednesday, March 1st in Peril Hall, Chris Bionez, register online so we can get nowhere to put it. He was so excited. I'm sorry, dear, go ahead. Yeah, the Plano Police don't allow us to 
He didn't want it streamed. It was the second biggest crowd he's ever spoken to in 15 years. That's kind of amazing. That is, that's wonderful. They, we had the, a Plano police officer here as part of the Second Act Ministry Sunday at 11 o'clock. Did a big presentation on fraud and identity theft and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but we, can't, we couldn't stream it. So, and, um, but anyway, it was really well attended. And Is that St. Andrew's website? No. Oh, yes, yes, it is. Look for Second Act Ministries and just register your attendance. Yeah, just look for Second. Sure, sure. Okay. But know that you got to speak up. Okay. So I'm just making this shameless plugs. I'm so sorry that Scott and I are not going to be at this event because we're going to be on a cruise. But if you all want to go to that event at Revel in Frisco, you need to sign up. Uh, Last I heard last week, there was already 150 (coughs) people signed up. Um, it's $15, that's the cover charge to get in that night from, I think, 5.30 to 8.30. The entire club is nothing but St. Andrew people. So you don't have to mingle with strangers if you don't want to. <laughs> if you want to mingle with strangers, you could pay a second cover and come back in at 8.30. But it will be really fun. It's dueling pianos. Um, they have great food. Scott and I have eaten there. We were pleasantly surprised. It is a really fun place to get to know. So. Okay. So that's also it's the Second yes. Act Ministry on the church website. Yes. Okay. When are we going to go again? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Israel's not a vacation. Oh my word, Evie. I'm lucky I got through it. So. <laughs> oh, vacation. Oh man. Not for those who are leading. So anyway, okay, so we are back to today for 1 Samuel. I wanted to maybe just talk a little bit more about the judges of Israel, because I don't know that I really did this correctly or fully last time. When the tribes of Israel settled into the Promised Land in looking something like this, these big splotches of area are basically meant to represent the lands of the various tribes. There is no human king for these tribes, okay? God is their king. God is their king. God is their leader in battle. God is their king. And instead, to settle disputes among the tribes and do some of the things that a human king would typically do, they have people called judges. And that's who Gideon is, and that's who Deborah is, and that's who Samson is. And that story, which I talked about, the slow unwinding until everybody was doing right in their own eyes at the end of the book of Judges, um, sets you up because what's going to happen in the book of Samuel is the people are going to end up demanding a human king, like everybody else has. But sort of locking away that, that they had a king and that that king was God is important because even when you come to the time of Jesus, when they are, when the Jews are under Roman rule, um, uh, there would have been groups in Israel with bumper stickers that read, no king but God, no king but God, right? So anyway, that's just a little piece to, piece to file away. So this is the land of Israel at, at the time of the Judges. 
Shiloh, that's where the book of Samuel opens, is that star in the middle. And last week we began the story. Now, the story revolves in the beginning around a man named Elkanah, who from the town of Ramathaim, and we're told that he and would bring his wives and family as best they could up to Shiloh where he could, Elkanah could offer um, uh, offerings to God up at Shiloh. Because Shiloh where that arrow's pointing, that is where the tabernacle is. Okay? You remember I had this, this little artist depiction of the town last week with the tabernacle in the background there. It looks something like this. Okay, or like here's a model, big model, life-size model that was built in the um, Israeli Israel wilderness at one time. I think it's gone now. But this is what the town is. And so Elkanah would come there, and Elkanah has two wives, right? Peninnah and Hannah. And Peninnah is able to give her husband Elkanah lots of babies. And Hannah is not. She is barren. She is childless. And in this world, that brings great, not only is she sad about that, but it brings shame upon her. But we do get these moments where Elkanah says to her, well, you know, um, he gives her a double portion of, of everything that he can because he loves her. And it's very poignant. And he says to her, well, aren't isn't my love worth more to you than ten sons? And you could say, well, I guess, but Hannah wants a child. Hannah wants a child. And, that, and she is going to go um, to the tabernacle, to that area, and she is going to pray to God for such a child. That's kind of where we left it last week, I think. Just a little bit of introduction, right? So where we probably ought to pick it up, um, just go and look, look at verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll read our way forward from there. Once when they, this is Elkanah and Hannah and the family, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of Yahweh's house. That is, that is this, that's this gateway. Right? Because this is Yahweh's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to Yahweh, weeping bitterly. Right? While she's praying, she's crying and she's crying and she's crying. This, and she made a vow and she says, Lord Almighty, Yahweh should I. If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to you, to Yahweh, for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Right now, for us sitting here in Plano in 2023, yeah, we're following all along, no razor will ever touch his head. So she is offering that if she will get pregnant, this, this child will be given to God and, and 
as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a, um, a servant of God set aside for God's purpose and we can learn a little bit more about the Nazarites by looking at Numbers, the book of Numbers chapter 6. So why don't you do that? We'll, we'll look at the whole thing but we'll read a little ways into that. The key thing about a Nazarite vow, as you will see, is it's not, it's not a lifetime vow. It's not a lifetime vow. In fact, um, Paul, <coughs> making his way to Jerusalem in the book of Acts, will not cut his hair to just try to help get him in good with the Jews who oppose him. So this is num the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible part of the five books that are typically called the Torah, chapter 6, verse 1. This is telling the story after they leave um, Mount Sinai and are headed up to the Promised Land. Okay? So Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman... Want, notice that? That's cool. If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to Yahweh as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. That covers it all, doesn't it? As long... <laughs> As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During, their, during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, so hence you know it's not a lifetime thing, right? It, it lasts until you're ready to end it. No razor must be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. So, you know, it's... What is the deal with raisins? <laughs> hair cutting? It, it's these moments when you remember that you're reading something here that's coming to you from more than 3,000 years ago and a world very different from our own. And these ancient practices and ancient customs, you know, they, they don't make, make, so much make, make much sense to us, but we do lots of weird things ourselves, right? You know, one night a year we dress up our little kids in all kinds of little monster costumes and stuff and send them out begging for candy or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, what's that about, right? So, so, just as it is. Verse 6. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. The same would be true with the priests of Israel. They, they couldn't go near or handle or touch a dead body. It is why in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, the priest comes from the family of Levi, pass by the man who was injured on the roadway in the parable of the Good Samaritan because they're afraid that if they go to help him and he's dead, they will make themselves ritually unclean and have to go through the big pain in the neck process of making themselves clean again. Yes, sir? I remember years ago I was in England, I have to be at uh, 
Well, there was a gambling area, and the Arabs were there. And it was interesting. The Arab and they were Arab here. They they couldn't gamble, but they had somebody next to them that wasn't an Arab going to bets. And I've always wondered why, as you said, the Levites they could have got somebody that wasn't of their feeling. Well, in the first, first, so 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 Don is pointing out how hypocritical we people are. That he was in England once, and and there were Arabs who aren't supposed to gamble, so they had somebody gamble for them, which is kind of defeating the purpose, I think, of it. Which is we probably do some of the same things, and so. But in the parable, the Levite could have somebody. But the, what is the point of the parable? The point is that these respected Israelites who are priests and Levites pass the dead man by and don't take the trouble to go find someone to tell. Because who knows who their neighbor is? The despised Samaritan knows who his neighbor is, which is the question that Jesus has asked when he tells the parable. The lawyer asks Jesus, well, how do I know who my neighbor is? And that's when he tells the story. And the shocking part is, that the um, Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite, these leaders, they don't know. It is the Samaritan who knows. And then he goes way overboard in taking care of this person. It's a very, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a very shocking story. I've heard it retold in ways that sort of get you right between the eyes if it's brought forward to a modern day to make it just as gut-wrenching as it would have been to those who heard Jesus. So, all right, so let's, let's just stay in numbers for a second. Verse 7, even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonial, unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated, which means set apart for God, for God's service. Now, this business of shaving the head, what it does is that it enables people to identify that this person has taken this special vow, that they are dedicated to God. Because the truth is, if somebody says, I'm dedicating myself to God, I'm fully committed. To God, I really love Jesus. There's no visible symbol of that, right? That's something very internal, and so you can't see it. Now, remember, I preached a sermon once saying, what would it be if we carried this little sign on our head that says, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Every time we walked into Walmart or Costco or somewhere else, it was like we were, you know, that would be close to something like this. That's what the shaved head does. And Hannah is telling God that she is going to give her son that she wants so desperately over to the Lord's service. Which I think to modern ears sounds like she's almost foregoing the purpose for what she, why does she want the kid? She's going to want the kid to give him away quickly over to God's service. So anyway, all right. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes? What were their jobs serving? Did they just pray or 
There were a lot of priestly functions that they did. They had to keep the place. They had to bake the bread that would go on the show table. And they had lots of offerings and other things. There were burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and, you know, all these things that had to be tended to. But I think a lot of the time, Rita, you're right. They just got into trouble as we are going to find out. <laughs> okay. So she makes this vow, and it's basically, she doesn't call it a Nazarite vow, but that's basically what it is, because she says, no razor will touch his head. Verse 12, well, as she kept on praying to Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth moving. So her mouth, so she's praying, and her mouth is moving at the same time. She was, Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Now, to me, this isn't unusual, really. <laughs> a little eruption there. You can go, you that, that's okay, Gary. Out. That's all right. It's it's lovely times. <laughs> when my one of my grandsons was really little, really, really little, my phone went off, and at that time, I had this trumpet tune by Henry Purcell was my ringtone, and he. <gasps> And he picked it up and he goes, oh, and he heard it and he said, that must be Jesus. Because <laughs> it sounded like music he would have heard at church. That's all I can figure. <laughs> so Eli's looking at Hannah. She's praying in her heart. Her lips are moving, but she's not making any sound. That's all. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. And she stand, says up, stands up to him and she says, Not so, my lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. That is the heart of prayer. That is the heart of prayer. The essence of prayer. If you want to boil prayer down to one sentence, use that sentence right there. You are pouring out your soul to God. Richard Foster, who wrote this great book on prayer, said it's like going and sitting down with your beloved grandparent and just pouring your heart out to them. That's, that's the essence of it. it. Sure, we can take in their requests and we can take in their prayers for others and we can take in their praise for God and thanksgiving, but the, the essence of it is to pour your heart your soul out to God. Pour your heart out to God. And that is what she has been doing. That's why, that's why the words don't matter so much. People get very concerned. I don't know what to say. You know, I can't really, I can't really confess that to God. I've been told that many times. And of course, if you stop and think for half a second, do you think God doesn't know what's in your heart? Right, I can remember, I was close to my grandfather and, and I would go in and my granddad, my mom, I mean, they would basically know what was going on before I told them, but it was important to pour your soul out to your granddad, right? Or to your parents or whomever. So she says, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking. I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And you know how desperately, 
desperately grieved she is that she has not born Elkanah a son, a child. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. So that's a gracious moment for Eli. Right? He was mistaken. He didn't come back at her again. He realized a mistake and just said, I, I, I hope that God does for you what you are asking of him. And she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. She had taken it to God and she was willing to leave it there. And she unburdened herself. You find talking with people sometimes about the troubles in your life to be unburdening? I've, I have found it in my life when, when I've gone through difficult times to... I was going through a divorce many, 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 many years ago and I ended up talking to a lady on a plane and she was so kind because I basically poured out my soul to her. And she just listened. That's all it was. But wow, for me, it was very powerful. Very powerful. Very brought me a lot of a lot of a lot of peace. And that's what prayer should be. When you go to God in prayer, you're pouring out your soul to someone who is anxious to hear. Now, if you think God doesn't hear. There's hardly any point in going to God in prayer. This, if, if you think that your prayers cannot avail of anything, cannot affect anything, well, I mean, if that's your attitude toward prayer, why would God listen? But God does listen. God will hear your prayers. Your prayers can affect what God does. I believe that. That's the, that's the biblical story from beginning to end. We just convince ourselves somehow that no, our prayers, you know, God, God can't really, um, we can't really uh, affect what's going to happen through prayer. But that's not the biblical view. And I could walk you through the stories in the Bible that are just, that are all about that. So here's Hannah. Now she's feeling better. She's no longer downcast. She has poured her soul out to God. So, verse 19, early the next morning, they, that would be the family, arose and worshipped before Yahweh and then went back to their home at Ramah. So, we're back to just, it's, it would be Ramathaim, which is right there. Okay, just a little bit west. So, remember, El, um, Elkanah's an Ephraimite. We talked about that last week. Um, if I were to back this up, maybe one slide. That green area there, the little one underneath the star, that's the tribe of Ephraim. So, okay. They go home, they went back to their home at Ramah, and Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah. And Yahweh remembered her. That is this beautiful Hebrew way of speaking about, about God is taking action. 
it isn't that God forgets stuff. It's this Hebrew um, way of, of, of saying that, okay, now, now is the time. It's the same thing happens when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. Their prayers have gone up and gone up and gone up and then you get to the end of chapter two and it said, God heard their prayers and remembered. It doesn't mean he forgot, but it's so, it's an, what's the word? It's an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom for, for now it's time. Yes, was there a hand here somewhere? No? Okay. So in the course of time, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And your Bible might have a little footnote there at the name Sam, because it's Samuel, you can think of it as Samuel hyphen L. Because L, E-L, is the word for God. It's related to the Muslim Allah, okay? It's just the word for God. So Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard by God, the translators say, okay? This is very common in the Hebrew Bible. Almost all the names mean something, and they mean something in the context of what's happening. If you look at the names given to all the sons of Jacob, and he has a bunch, right? All the names mean something in the context of what's happening in the baby-making competition between Rachel and Leah and the rest of it. So, so the key is to recognize that the, is to catch that little L at the end, Samuel. It's like, um, uh, what is it like? How, like Bethel. Is a prominent place in the Bible, the house of God. Um, Israel. Israel is, is one who struggles with God. That's the name given to Jacob when he wrestles with God at the riverside. Okay? So um, here the child will be named Samuel. 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 Um, one of the. One of the stories. I'm not going to go into great detail about it because it's really Arthur's story, but in 2016 Arthur and Becky went with Patty and me and a large group of people to, on a 10-day Israel land trip. And they were having trouble um, conceiving a child. And, and Becky came on the trip and she was very, very heartbroken about this. And they got to Shiloh, which was later in the trip, I think. And um, they prayed, like Hannah, for a, for a child. And she got pregnant. And that is why when you see Arthur's oldest, his son, his son's name is Samuel. He didn't pick it simply because it's a cool name. He picked it because of this story right here. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, there, there's, more, there's more to the story, but it's Arthur's story to tell. But it kind of makes, my, makes the skin on my back, back of my neck stand up. It's very, wow, okay? So though these, though these, these events that happened 3,000 years ago, because that's about where we are, roughly 3,000 or 3,100 years ago, something like that, 
though they're far removed from our world and their customs are different, they're still people, right? You can identify with Hannah. Why does God give us a book filled with stories? That's largely what it is. God doesn't have, God, I mean, God had something to say about the kind of scripture God would give us. And why is it God gave us scripture that is largely stories? Well, because he's relational, but because we can really step into stories in the ways that we can't step into a theological treatise. I like theological treatises, okay? I like doctrine, I like all that, but that isn't what God gave us. God didn't give us a book of systematic theology. God didn't give us a book of rules. It's largely a book of stories because I can find myself in these stories in Samuel time and time again. I can picture it. And now Hannah has gotten pregnant and she has given birth to a son and she names him Samuel. Because she says, because I asked Yahweh for him. Okay, so any thoughts or questions before we go on? Just out of curiosity, I've never seen the word beer in the Bible before. Yes. I've never seen the word beer in the Bible. You've never seen the word beer in the Bible, but it's in the NIV because it expresses fermented drink. There are various kinds of fermented drink, right? So, there we go. They had a variety. Well, they knew what it was. <laughs> variety is a good thing. Yeah, variety is a good thing. Ta- tastes great, less filling. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they probably, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know the funny thing about the funny thing is the the Bible isn't focused on beer. The Bible is focused on wine, because of all the grapes that can be grown in Israel, and there's and constantly the the metaphor is that God is the vine grower, the owner of the vineyard, right? And Israel is the vineyard, or Jesus is the vineyard. A lot of vineyard stuff going going on in the various ways that the Bible talks about it. But wine in, in the Old Testament is always a gift. It's a gift from God to the people. And um, I don't know of a place in the Bible where it is condemned. Okay? Uh, it's a gift from God. That's the way it's seen. It's a gift from God to the people. One of the many gifts that God gives his, gives God his people. Aside, you know what Benjamin Franklin said about beer? What did Benjamin Franklin say about beer, Jim? Proof that God loves us. Proof that God loves us. What, what proof? Ha ha, can you get that? Yes, okay, yes. Yes, Patty. You do have a, a question online from Josie Teeter. Okay, Josie Teeter in Claremont, Florida. That's right. So um, she wanted to know how about the word Emmanuel. Can you sure, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God, it means with us. So hence, Emmanuel means God with us. That's it. There you go. If you go through the Bible, there are a whole lot of things that end in L because they're incorporating this word. Now, understand, it's a word for God, like G-O-D. It's not the name of God. The name of God is called the Tetragrammaton. It is Y-H-W-H. That's the name given to Moses at the burning bush. That's the name. Israel. Beth L. There's a lot of them, right? Emmanuel, Samuel. Okay, cool. 
That's awesome. Hi, Josie. She used to live here, but she and they, they, they moved to Florida a while ago, but she checks in on class all the time. Now, if anybody has anything else, no, I'll press on. Verse 21. Now, when her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family, my time has passed, to offer the annual sacrifice to Yahweh and to fulfill his vow, right? He's a good, righteous man. He's going to go up. He's going to do what a good, righteous Jewish man should do and offer up these offerings at the tabernacle where the priests are, where it can all be handled appropriately. Um, because I said, as I said last week, the tabernacle is the beat, was the beating heart of Judaism. In Jesus' day, the temple, the priestly system, the system of sacrifices, animal sacrifices, that was the beating heart of Judaism. It's the Judaism of, the, of, you, of your friends in um, synagogues with rabbis and the study of Torah that would emerge after the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. And then, but until that point, the, the Jewish religion is built around the temple because it's God's house. It's God's dwelling place. And the system of sacrifices and the priests who run that system, who ran it, that system. So they're going back to, um, the family's going to go back to, yeah, that's a good slide to have up. They're going to go back to Shiloh again. Shiloh, as Leora would call it. <laughs> Verse 22, but Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before Yahweh, and he will live there always. So the boy is not yet old enough for her to take to the temple. It never gets specific about what age by what age he was weaned, but you get the idea. So her husband, Elkanah, told her, well, do what seems best to you. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull animal sacrifice, okay? An ephah of flour, that's just a measure of weight, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of Yahweh at Shiloh. The house of Yahweh, the house of God, is the tabernacle. It's God's dwelling place. It's why there's a table for bread, there's a menorah for light, um, there's a covering for it all. It's God's home because God dwells with his people, the Israelites, in a way that God was not with others. Okay? God chose to dwell with them. As in the opening chapter of John's Gospel, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Connection. Connect the dots. So she brought this young Samuel to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I am the woman 
who stood here beside you praying to Yahweh. I prayed for this child, right? This very child. And Yahweh has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to Yahweh. For his whole life he will be given over to Yahweh. And he, presumably Samuel, worshipped Yahweh there. So she has come. Her, what she is going to do is she is going to turn her young son. How old could he be? Three? Probably three, something like that. You know, it's a different world than our world, but maybe, maybe probably three, I would guess, something like that. And she's going to give him over to Eli to serve in the Lord's house in Shiloh. Yes. Would, would she be responsible, or the family be responsible in any way for supporting the child anymore? Probably not. The way it worked was that the Levites were the tribe that, from which the priests come. And when land is allotted in Israel, the Levites don't get any land because they were supported by tithes from the other tribes. So I would assume that if the boy is um, working in the temple and dedicated to the temple and the work that the priests do there, um, even though he is not a Levite, we're not really told what tribe there. Well, I guess he's, we were told that dad was an Ephraimite. Even though he's not a Levite, that, that would still encompass it. But I don't think we're ever told specifically one way or the other. But I would bet that's how it worked. Yes, Beth? So what would happen to the meat of the bull and the flour and the wine? The priests consume those? There are two kids. Okay, I'm being asked about, well, what happened to this three-year-old bull? Okay, and the, the flour and the wine. So there are two kinds of offerings in the Bible, generally speaking. One is a burnt offering, where the animal would be complete, would be put on the, <laughs> the altar, kind of this big square barbecue, and be completely consumed. And there would, until there was like nothing left or just bones left, and then they would be um, discarded. But it was all, the whole thing was offered to God. Then there was another kind of offering, a fellowship offering. Okay, and in a fellowship offering, the bull is prepared and cooked. Okay, the meat is cooked, but it's not all burnt up and it's shared. So it's an offering shared by God and shared by all the people. And that's why it's called a fellowship offering. I would guess this was a fellowship offering, given that she brought flour and wine and Fellowship offerings are so significant because they reflect the fact that God is living in, is living with his people. God is dwelling with his people. Okay? So you get a nice steak and a cab. You get a nice steak and a good cab? Yes, Gary. That's what you get, Gary. <laughs> unless, unless you run into Eli's sons, but that story lies a bit ahead. Yeah. Is there anything said of whether Hannah had any more children? No. I don't think so. Mike says I'll go with Mike. No. What was the question? Yeah. yeah. Did did Hannah have any more children? Yeah. Did Hannah have any more children? That's the question. Okay. And no, I don't think so. And Mike doesn't think so either. And he knows his Bible Bible well. Susie. 
Well, so Mike is saying she made a vow to the Lord, but it's still the question of why did Eli participate in this? But I think maybe he wants to because you're going to find out things about Eli and his sons. And when I look at the whole story from beginning to end, I think Eli was pretty glad to take in this, this, this I'll call it a chance to get it right because just hold on. Okay. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. Yes. Was this an, uncom an uncommon thing? Had to be, sure. This had to be an uncommon thing to do, right? Now, and of course, what are, what's happening here, really? Who, who else is the, is the childless woman in the Bible? Who's the first childless woman that you meet? Sarah. 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 Who, and then you have Hannah. So those stories are connected, right? A big moment with Sarah. Now, a big moment with Hannah, because Samuel is integral, huge, important, important in the story of Israel, the story of God's work in this world. Then who will be this other really important childless woman? Elizabeth, the first chapter of Luke. Rachel, Rachel is, but she does bear a child. But you're right, she doesn't have, she can't, she can't give Jacob children. So you're right, Patty. Jay, she, Rachel's another one. Um, and so this, this it's kind of like the second son motif in Scripture. There is, this, there is this childless woman. And some of them are ones like, well, let's see, Sarah's really, really old, we're told. We're told that Elizabeth is really, really old. We're not told that about Hannah. She seems to be of childbearing years, but just has it. And Rachel is of childbearing years because she does end up having a child, right? And, and who is Hannah's firstborn child? Uh, not Hannah's. Rachel's firstborn child. Joseph. Of the magic technicolor dream coat, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of integral to the story. So, it's, see, this is why you have to connect dots because if you don't begin to learn the stories and begin to, to, to read the Bible really from beginning to end, not just to read through it. All, all kinds of people just say, oh, I made it. I started with the first verse and made it all the way to the end. Like it was, it's probably some of it was drudgery. That's not what it should be. What we're about is connecting the dots of all these stories so that we can see the depth of what God has done and is doing in this world. And the way you see the full depth of it is by connecting these stories all together. Aha, Sarah. Aha, Rachel. Aha, Hannah. Aha, Elizabeth. Aha, Mike. I was mistaken. Hannah has other sons. Okay, so Mike's, Mike's gone ahead and looked it up, and Hannah has other sons. Whoever asked that question. Very good. Thank you. See? We're crowdsourcing this. Isn't that what the youngsters call it now? We're crowdsourcing this. <laughs> now, so she has taken Samuel in, and in another profound moment, she is going to offer up a prayer. Now, this prayer of hers ties pretty neatly with a couple of prayers of David. Um, 
in the book of Samuel and in the Psalms, but for a Christian, it's going it, to it's, it's be, it's like Mary's prayer. When she offers up, when she goes to visit Elizabeth, when they're both pregnant, right there in the Gospel of Luke. We just had Christmas time, so we should be familiar with that. So Hannah prayed, for chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in Yahweh. In Yahweh, my horn, that's a metaphor for strength, my strength is lifted high. High, I'm feeling strong. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. God has delivered her. He's given her this child. There is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Very much parallels a prayer that David offers up. Psalm maybe 118, if my memory serves me. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. This would be spoken, in the way it's like Mary. This is a prayer in which there's, certainly for our day, there's a message here to the world at large. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for Yahweh is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. I think again of the last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's not our eyes that weigh deeds. It is God's eyes who weigh deeds. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full higher those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. This is a picture of a world turned upside down. That's the idea. The idea is that those who have all this full bellies, well, they're hungry. And the ones who have the empty bellies, their stomachs are now full. It's the same thing as Mary. Mary Mary's prayer does the same thing, this great reversal. God's ways are not our ways. God doesn't measure people the way the world measures people. God doesn't measure success the way the world measures success. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Yahweh sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. So look again at verse 8 because it makes my point about as well as any of them. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. You see what I mean by the world being turned upside down? We're going to look at Mary's song in a minute. You'll see it again. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. Now, the foundations of the earth. Not, speak, not using this in the way that you and I might. For the ancients, the world is a flat, probably spherical, big giant chunk of land. 
and how was it being supported by pillars underneath so when the biblical writers speak at the foundations of the world it's not a metaphor we read it that way that's what it means to us but for the ancients that's kind of how they saw things right for the foundations of the earth of the Lord's on them he has set the world he will guard the feet of his faithful servants but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. <sighs> Arthur's sermon on Sunday, you see? That's, that's the story of the cross. What do we think, how do we think people win in this world? With swords and bank accounts. But no, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose Yahweh will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the strength of his anointed in the Hebrew. It is, a, it is and exalt the horn of his Mashiach, his Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So here we have Hannah with this prayer that sees ahead to the anointed one from God who will put things right. A rightful king who will put things right. And of course we Christians know that that person is Jesus. There'll be a lot of kings that lie between Hannah and the time of Jesus, but it is Jesus who is the anointed one of God and who has put and will put, put things right. So right while all that is fresh in your mind, turn to the second chapter of Luke. not very long so we'll just we'll just read through it and then we'll see what kind of thoughts or anything anybody has so this is Mary's song now her her story isn't Hannah's story right her story is oh, what do you mean I'm gonna be pregnant <laughs> right I'm a virgin this is a different story so Luke chapter 1 chapter 1 not 2 chapter 1 verse 46 Mary's song. It, um, Bach wrote this great piece of music called the Magnificat because in Latin, which was the Bible in the West for a thousand years, the opening word of this song is Magnificat, which you'll see. And, my, and Mary said, my soul glorifies, my soul magnifies the Lord. The NIV, I, they should just have kept the word magnifies there. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, to those who know that God is God and they are not. That's, what that, that's the essence of what that is. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. In this, what? Upside down. A young scholar at, at Duke wrote his dissertation, I think, and then it became a book, you know, on the Gospel of Luke, and, and I think he called it the upside down world or something like that, because that's the big, that's the big perspective of, of, of what's happening. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And that's Mary's song. And, you know, it's a famous song. There's a song from Zechariah. These are songs. They're really prayers. Um, and Hannah prays to God and she is thankful and she praises God's mightiness. She looks forward to a day when God's anointed will put things right and she sees in that a world turned upside down. Because in her world, are most people rich? No. Are most people middle, what you and I would call middle class? No. no. Most people are poor. In the ancient world, this, the, the class structure, we'll call it the socioeconomic structure, was like the Eiffel Tower. That's one of the best, I forget where I found that, but that's just a great example. Not many rich, not many would call middle class, but an ocean of poor people. People in this world um, struggled to get the calories they needed to survive. I've, I've read, you know, evolutionary biologists would tell you oh, that's one reason we're so darn fat. <laughs> because we're built to be very efficient users of calories. Very inefficient users of calories. And we have a, yeah, that's right, inefficient users of calories. We have a strong taste for sweet things, strong taste for things filled with calories because for most of human existence it was a fight to get enough. It's a fight to get enough here. These are not people well, well acquainted with full stomachs and the resulting indigestion and all the rest of it. Okay? So, at the end of Hannah's song, her prayer, we're told that then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before Yahweh under Eli the priest. So, what kind of questions or thoughts to this point? So the boy, Samuel, little kid, is now at the house of God with Eli, who has a couple of sons. So any thoughts or questions or anything? That's what she has said, that she's going to turn him over to the Lord's service for his whole life. But could he have resisted that? I, I probably could have, you know, I could see, but, but you know. Later in life, maybe. If we, you could always walk away from things. See, God doesn't imprison people. God doesn't imprison people. Um, but you will see that Samuel goes on to be the great judge 
and great prophet of Israel and the one who anoints the first human king of Israel. So Samuel's a very pivotal, pivotal person in the story of Israel. Mike? Yeah, I just think this is one of those situations where God selected this person and he became who he became and it's just an example of what God can and will do in, in, you know, in his, throughout creation. Turning to Hebrew, who, who, who closes, who closes Hannah's womb in chapter one? God does, right? So, you know, I think in the, if, if, in the view of scripture, it's God who is orchestrating this because it is Samuel whom God will depend upon, right? To bring about the transition to this kingship. Yes. Well, there. The people that educate him must have done a pretty good job, but I don't think it's God. It was Eli and the sons and the whole, all the whole priestly structure there at Shiloh. We don't get the names of them all, but there's a lot more people there than just Eli and his two wicked sons who we're about to meet. Okay, there's a lot of other folks involved in all of this. So she turns Eli over to them and he is raised there and these would be the people who would be um, educated, meaning that they could read, right? They could read the Torah, they could read the scrolls. They were the priests of Israel. Yeah, so, so that's, she, it's, what is it kind of like? I don't know. It's like, it's like she sends them off to like, I don't know, today it would be like boarding school or something. What? No, they didn't have seminary setups. There wouldn't be classes or courses or that sort of thing. How were people taught? They were taught by others who took them under their wing and taught them to read and so forth. It would be very, very mm -hmm. informal, would be my guess, okay? A lot of the, even in Jesus' day, a more than a thousand years later, most people, in the ancient world certainly, even amongst the Jews, a lot of people weren't terribly literate, okay? And girls certainly not. They were not they were not educated past like second past the second grade. So when she turns them over to Eli, she turns them the point the key thing is she turns them over to God's service and he is just this little kid and he will turn out to be this important important character. Is he this important person in the story of Israel because he got a good education? No because he's faithful to God. That's the key thing, you know. Maybe if we spent more of our time helping our kids be faithful to God and not as much time on making sure that they were, had, you know, 22 years of college, it would be better, I don't know. And I am, can say that as a person who has many, many years of schooling. Okay, so, Let's go just a little bit, okay? Some more odd things happen here. Now, Eli, this is a word, verse 12. Now, Eli's sons were wicked. Scoundrels. 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 Dirty, rotten scoundrels. 
They had no regard for Yahweh. There is no greater condemnation you could make of these two young men than that. They had no regard for Yahweh. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself and the rest would be dot, 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 and the rest would be offered to God. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, this is to illustrate how bad it's gotten in Shiloh. Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the person said to him, well, <laughs> let the fat be burned first. That's for God. The fat's like the best part. See, you and I don't, we, we trim all the fat off, right? That's because my fight, my life is a constant fight against caloric intake. <laughs> These people don't trim the fat off. The, fat off, the fat's the best part. Not only does it provide the, the, the meat with flavor, it provides a lot of calories. So, such as in the fatted calf. So, so when they would take the meat and they want the best part to go up to God. The best part should go to God. That's the idea. But that's not what's happening. Let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want. And the servant would answer, no. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So what's happening is that led by these two evil sons, the wicked sons, the scoundrels, the priestly system in um, Shiloh is falling apart and the people who bring their offerings to God are basically having the offerings stolen, sabotaged, because the priests would take all the best parts for themselves when the best parts are supposed to go to God. That's the gist of the story of what's happening here, even though I'm not, you know, yeah. So, now let's make a connection. How were, how were the priests viewed in Jesus' day? Wicked. The common people understood that the priestly system in Jesus' day was corrupt. It was a dynasty of rich people passed on from father to son to son to son and that the temple needed to be cleansed. So what does Jesus do to enact a cleansing of that temple? He charges in, he takes the whole priestly system and he interrupts it. They're all bringing in their little birds and little whatever, whatever, and buying animals to be sacrificed. And Jesus makes such a ruck as it all comes to a stop at least for 15 or 20 minutes, right? I'm sure then they picked it up and resumed it. When Jesus does that, let's connect another dot. Who is he invoking? 
Who does, what, what prophet of Israel does the same thing? Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes and he stands in the gates to the temple and he says, you people, you come here and you want to wrap yourselves in the temple and you say to yourself, you want to say to yourselves, well, this is the Lord's temple, this is the Lord's temple, and this is the Lord's temple, while you're out neglecting all the orphans and widows and your thieves and it's your robbers and you're not pursuing justice. No, that's Jeremiah. When Jesus says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, it's not an original thought with him. He is quoting Jeremiah from 600 years before. And now what's happening, oh, let's call it five or 600 years before that. <sighs> the priests are corrupt again, led by Eli's sons, whom presumably Eli is too old and weak to do much about it. I don't know, but it's, 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 it's indicative of the truth that the problem throughout the Old Testament is the human heart. The Israelites made a covenant with God back at Mount Sinai that boils down to loving God and loving others and they just won't. They just won't. And so Don is pointing out that it continues to this day, which is why we can't look to ourselves for the answer to that. Because certainly 3,000 or 4,000 or 10,000 years of human history would be enough evidence to say that we're not capable of that. So we need what? A savior, a rescuer. And that is, that's, that's, that's like the essence of the Jesus story. Jesus comes to do and be for us what we are unwilling to do and be for ourselves. The problem here is the same problem that faced Jeremiah. It's the same problem that faced Jesus. It's the same problem that exists today. There's a darkness in the human heart. There's a darkness in the heart of these two sons and those who assist them in this. The little boy is going to be a bright light in that. But don't think that the little boy is Jesus. He's not Jesus. We all, Paul says we all fall short. We all fall short of the glory of God. So, yeah. So when we come back next week, we have now been introduced to the wicked sons, and then we're going to see more about the boy's story. Okay? Um, all right? So... Any final thoughts or questions or things like that that I can try to help with? Well, I'm so glad that all of y'all came today and we're just getting warmed up. When we get to the story of where God calls little Samuel, God calls little Samuel in the middle of the night, I'm telling you, it is just wow. It's... No, what a, it's just a great, great story. So, anyway, okay. Anything, Patty? No. Okay. Well, let's let's close. Mike. How Jay is a local radio personality, and his heart is given out, and he is in need of a heart transplant. 
Okay, well. And so Beth and I have taken upon ourselves, actually she has taken upon herself to really, really want to lift him up in prayer because he is on the transplant list, but he's down on the list. Okay, well, we'll, we'll pray that Hal J is able to get his heart transplant. Those transplant lists are pretty long sometimes. They really are. Yeah, well, <laughs> even if he weren't a Methodist, we could still pray for him, right? Okay, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we are, we do lift up Hal J. We lift up all those. There's just so many who are in need of your healing and strength and so many people who need to know that you can, they can come to you in prayer and that your prayer, you do hear them. You do answer their prayer, perhaps not in all the ways that we want, but you hear them and you answer and you want people to pour out their soul to you. Help us, help us to do exactly that. Help us to see the truth about who you are and, 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 and the truth of prayer. Um, Hannah certainly changed Hannah's life. May it change ours as we continue our walk toward you and in the footsteps of Jesus. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.